Again, we're going to focus primarily on verse 12 and verse 28, but we're going to read verses 12 to 30 so that we have the whole context in view. So, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Holy Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to you to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask our gracious Heavenly Father to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do give You thanks that In your infinite wisdom, in eternity past, you would conceive that the one who was rich beyond all splendor would become poor for the sake of wicked sinners like us. It's almost too wonderful to comprehend, God, that you would ordain that your Son lay aside his heavenly glory to take on flesh and to be light in the darkness, not just of this world, but the darkness of our hearts. We, we gather today, God, mindful of the fact that were it not for the work of Christ to redeem His people, we would, we would have no hope. We would not be here. We would be content, Father, in our lives bound for condemnation. But in the richness of Your mercy, You have sent Your Son to be light in the darkness, to redeem a people for Your own glory. Give us grace now, God, to hear Your Word as we consider the things of Christ this morning. Give us grace to listen and to believe. Father, keep me from error. Help me to speak faithfully from the Scriptures 
and help your people to be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Imagine with me, if you would, a large courtyard with a great throng of people milling about. The sun is setting in the west. Night is coming on quickly. And yet, the people in the crowd don't seem to be in any rush to get home. In fact, it's just the opposite. With each moment, as the night draws nearer, the people grow more excited. There's a palpable sense of expectation that something is about to happen. Then when the night finally settles in over that courtyard and over that crowd, that something becomes a reality. Four enormous lamps, 75 feet tall, four enormous lamps are lit. And the glow of their light fills the courtyard, kicking off a joyous celebration. Songs are sung. Stories are told. Prayers are offered. It's what the crowd has been waiting for. They've been waiting for the light to break into the night, signaling that the time has come once again to worship the Lord their God. Friends, what we've just imagined together is the setting for Jesus' stunning declaration that He is the light of the world. Our passage this morning takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, one of the annual celebrations from Israel's life that acknowledged and worshipped God for His past deliverance and His present provision, the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice how verse 12 begins with the word again. You see that again Jesus spoke to them. That word throws us back to chapter 7 where the Feast of Tabernacles gave Jesus an opportunity to stand up in the temple and to teach. And now that setting continues into chapter 8 as the Feast of Tabernacles reaches its conclusion. And one of the pinnacles of this particular feast was the lighting ceremony that I just described. Enormous lamps. Enormous lamps. Some sources say up to 75 feet tall. Enormous lamps were lit in the temple courtyard and the glow spilled out from the temple so that everyone in Jerusalem could witness the light. So as you might expect from that background, there could hardly have been a more dramatic setting for Jesus to stand up and say, I am the light of the world. This wasn't simply another sermon from Jesus that made familiar use of the contrast between light and dark. No, this was much more strategic than that. Much more purposeful than that. With the light of the feast radiating over the entire city, Jesus audaciously claimed that He was God's provision for His people. Everything God had done in the past, and everything God was doing in the present, all of it was about Jesus. You see, for Christ, verse 12 was much more than imagery. It was much more than an illustration. This was a declaration of identity. This was a claim of supremacy. Even a call for allegiance. Make no mistake, friends, by claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus put Himself at the very center of what God was doing throughout all the creation. The question, of course, is how exactly does all of this this get fleshed out? 
As with the other I am statements, there's a surface level understanding that's not hard to grasp. We get light. We get darkness. We understand that they can't exist together. So there's this surface level understanding that's not hard to grasp. But the dramatic setting of Jesus' statement points us towards a deeper significance. Jesus chose this moment in order to make this statement because it provided a unique opportunity to reveal His glory. So mindful of that setting, here's what I'd like us to do. I want us to just consider together this question. How does the use of light illuminate Jesus' identity and mission? How does the use of light illuminate who Jesus is and what He came to do? What do we learn in verse 12 that we might not have learned were it not for this stunning declaration? That's what I'd like us to consider. And as we do that, we'll find there are at least three astounding statements we can make regarding the light of the world. At least three. Number one, the light of the world proclaims salvation as personally and solely in Jesus. Every word there is intentional. The light of the world proclaims salvation as personally and solely in Jesus. By the time we get to chapter 8 in John's Gospel, the theme of light has already been well established in connection with Jesus. It began actually in the very first chapter where the Apostle John declared, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. From the outset, Jesus' life was set in terms of light versus darkness. Jesus Himself then confirmed and expounded on that theme when He spoke with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Friends, that statement is is really key to chapter 8. Jesus made it clear that light and darkness were not physical categories, but spiritual realities. So when Jesus stands up in verse 12 and declares Himself to be the light of the world, He's making an astonishing claim about salvation. The world lies in darkness. And that darkness is manifested in opposition to God. This is why the light has come. Because without the light, the world and those who dwell in it would remain enslaved in their hell-bound darkness. Let's not miss this, friends. Countless numbers of people are celebrating Jesus' birth, but they do so without fully embracing the reason why He came. He did not come to shine the light on how we should live. He did not come to illuminate the spiritual path so that each of us might find God. Those ideas miss the point of Jesus' words. Jesus came to redeem those bound in darkness. At its core, that's what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. His mission is redemptive. So to celebrate Him rightly, you must celebrate Him as the Redeemer. Or else you don't know Him. If there were any doubt as to this purpose, Jesus clears it up in the remainder of verse 12. Notice what He says. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Friends, did you catch the contrast Jesus slips in with that statement? You might say, well, of course, it's the contrast between light and darkness. Yes, but it's, it's more than that, actually. It's the contrast between life and death. Look again at what he says. Those who follow Jesus have the light of life. Which means those who walk in darkness are bound in what? Death. You see, friends, it's about redemption. That's why the Son of God took on human flesh. To redeem those bound in death's darkness. There is no true celebration of Advent without a deeply felt awareness that this child came to redeem those who were hopeless apart from Him. And that's not just true of Advent, that's true of Christianity. Make this the center of your celebration, brothers and sisters. Make this the center of your faith. As we go through the weeks of Advent, let's also keep an eye on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. For that's why the light has come. His coming is fundamentally redemptive. We should also note in verse 12 that this redemption is entirely personal. It's personal. Notice again what Jesus says will happen to those who follow Him. They will walk in the light of life. Now, the question we should ask here is this. Why does light produce life? Why does light produce life? That's what Jesus is saying. The light He gives is the light that produces life. Why? Well, you have to go back to chapter 1 to find that answer. In John chapter 1, verse 4, we find this incredible declaration. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So why does the light produce life? Because He is life in Himself. Friends, don't, don't, let, don't let the imagery obscure the staggering truth on display at this point. This should change the way we think about salvation. Too often, we reduce salvation to a transaction. An exchange of one position for another. And while that is true on some level, that's actually not the primary way the New Testament speaks about salvation. In the New Testament, redemption is not primarily a transaction, but a union. A real, personal union between the believer and Christ. This is what it means to be saved. It means you are united with Jesus in such a way that His life becomes your life. It's not a transaction, it's a union. Friends, this is why redemption is such a beautiful reality. Because in redeeming us, God doesn't give us a thing, He gives us Himself. He doesn't change our status, He changes our nature. Our identity. To receive God's salvation is receiving nothing less than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a real, personal union. So that He is yours and you are His. What belongs to Him belongs to you because you are in Him. In Him was life. And those who follow Him have that life because they have Him. Friends, this is why you can never reduce conversion to a decision. This is why you can never reduce salvation to just getting out of hell. It's not just that that is sub-biblical. It's also just not good enough. Those who follow Christ have life because they have Him. The redemption Christ effects is entirely personal. 
Even still, let's press it a little bit further in verse 12. Jesus' mission is fundamentally redemptive. That redemption is entirely personal. And then last of all, that redemption is solely in Him. When Jesus says He is the light of the world, He is not saying the entire world will come to salvation. Rather, Jesus is saying there is no way of salvation for the world other than Him. Notice the emphatic personal pronouns. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will have the light of life. There's no mistaking it, friends. He alone is the light. So that if anyone in this dark world is to be saved, it will come only through faith in Christ. We don't like exclusivity in our day, do we? Our culture values tolerance and openness almost above everything else. Anything that hints at being narrow is automatically cast aside as antiquated, harsh, and unhelpful. And yet, when you look at the Scriptures, there's no way around the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There's just no way around it. At every point of His ministry, Jesus presents Himself as the one and only way of knowing God. Understand, brothers and sisters, this is not something to be embarrassed about. This is at the heart of Christ's glory. This is why we worship Him. This is why we gather together every Lord's Day to celebrate Him. This is why we share the Gospel with those who don't know Him. This is why we send missionaries all over the world to the farthest reaches of the globe. Because apart from Christ, there is no salvation. It's solely in Him. We shouldn't be embarrassed about these things. We should worship Him for this. He alone is the Savior. He alone is the light of the world. So when we put all of this together, we see verse 12 is certainly more than an illustration. It's it's more than imagery. In declaring Himself to be the light of the world, Jesus makes an astonishing claim about salvation. Redemption is His mission. That redemption is personal. And that redemption is solely in Him. But let's circle around now and meditate on verse 12 from a slightly different perspective. We just considered what verse 12 says about Jesus' mission. Now let's consider what it says about Jesus' person. His identity. The light of the world reveals Jesus as completely and fully one with God. The light of the world reveals Jesus as completely and fully one with God. We noted earlier how light is a key theme in the Gospel of John, but as you probably know, light is also a key, a key theme throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the very first words we hear God say in the Bible have to do with light. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. So from the beginning, light was associated with God. As the Scriptures progressed, that association was developed and then deepened through God's interaction with the people of Israel. If you think through Israel's history, this is actually quite gripping. Time after time, light was connected with God. Light pictured God's presence. Think of how God led the people of Israel following the Exodus. It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Think about what represented God's presence in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple. It was the light grow, glowing from the lampstand. God led them with His light. The light represented God's presence. 
Light also described the counsel of God's Word. Remember the encouragement of Psalm 119. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God directed His people with the light of His truth. It pictured the counsel of His Word. Light also symbolized God's glory. There are too many examples to recount here, but perhaps most striking is Isaiah 60, verse 19, where the prophet declares, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Time after time, throughout the Old Testament, light was connected with the very nature of God. So, when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, He knows exactly what He's doing. Those Old Testament echoes would have started to pop in people's minds. And questions would have started to swirl. What exactly is He saying? Is He connecting Himself with God? And Jesus, for His part, does nothing to dampen such thinking. In fact, He goes out of His way to crystallize it. If you look at the ensuing dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus repeatedly ties Himself to the Father. Just scan through 13 to 30 with me and notice how often Jesus does this. Verse 14, Jesus says, I know where I came from and where I am going. So Jesus' origin is from God and His destination is with God. Verse 16, Jesus says, It is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent Me. So Jesus works in accords with God as one would work with an equal or a peer. Verse 18, Jesus declares, The Father who sent Me bears witness about Me. Here Jesus claims that God speaks in His favor. That God defends Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus says, If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. That's a truly stunning claim. To know Jesus is to know God. Again, as though they were equals. Verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on My own authority, but speak just as the Father taught Me. Here Jesus maintains a direct relationship with the invisible God. Verse 29, Jesus declares, He who sent Me has not left Me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Again, Jesus relates in a personal way to the living God. Friends, we should be stunned by what Jesus is doing here. If we're not, then we're not grasping the weight of what He's saying. We should be stunned by what He is doing. Not only does He play on the Old Testament connection of light with God, but now Jesus repeatedly stresses His own direct and personal relationship with the Father. Something that no one else had ever experienced. John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. Jesus is saying, I not only have seen Him, I came from Him. He works for me. I work with Him. We work together. In fact, look down just briefly at the end of the chapter. Verse 58 This debate between Jesus and the religious leaders reaches its climax. The religious leaders claim authority over Jesus since they are children of Abraham, they claim. Then notice what Jesus says in verse 58. Truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. Full stop. There's no predicate. I am. That's the divine name, brothers and sisters. 
That's what the invisible Creator God declared to Moses at the burning bush. That's the name of God the people of Israel were too terrified to even say out loud out of fear of mispronouncing it and dishonoring the Lord. But here, Jesus takes that divine name and He not only says it, He applies it to Himself. Friends, the conclusion is inescapable. Jesus of Nazareth is God in the human flesh. He is one with the Father so that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. And yet, He is distinct from the Father so that Jesus can speak of being sent by and taught by God. He is one with the Father and He is distinct from the Father. By claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus is declaring His identity as nothing less than God Himself. Now, why am I bringing this to your attention today? Well, for one reason, there's two reasons, really. One is I want us to see that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a philosophical scheme imposed on the Bible. It is rather the necessary conclusion of rightly reading the Bible. Often, evangelical Christians minimize and misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity And that's due in part to the fact that we treat it like an abstraction. We we treat it like it's some foreign philosophical concept that was imposed on the Bible only centuries after the apostles. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. And I hope we see it here in the text. I'm not quoting Athanasius. I'm not quoting Luther. I'm not quoting Augustine. I'm quoting Jesus. When you see it from the text, right from Jesus' own mouth, we see the essential pieces that compel us to say there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This isn't a foreign idea imposed upon the Bible. No human mind could conceive of something so wonderful. This is the Bible's own testimony. And that testimony is of the blessed Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, united together in the fullness of deity, yet distinct from one another in their own personhood. We didn't make this up. It's from the Bible. The other reason why I bring this to your attention is to remind us that this particular doctrine is absolutely essential for our salvation. If Jesus is not one with the Father, while also distinct from the Father, if that glorious doctrine isn't true, then we have no hope, friends. We have no hope. If Jesus is not one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father. If Jesus is not fully God, then His life cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and we all stand condemned. If Jesus is not fully God, then His blood cannot atone for anyone's sins, and we are all still under God's wrath. If Jesus is not fully God, then He cannot ascend again into the Father's presence, and we have no way to be brought into that presence ourselves. If Jesus is not fully God, then He is not interceding for us right now from heaven's throne. Brothers and sisters, far from being some dry, speculative philosophy, the doctrine of the Trinity lies at the very heart of our faith the very heart of what we believe. Our hope rests on this unfathomable reality that Jesus of Nazareth is completely and fully one with God. That's why we have joy at Christmas. Because of these truths. 
One of my goals each and every Advent season is to stir up God's people to understand the depths of who God is as He has revealed in His Word. It's one of my goals every year. Or to say it another way, I pray that these Advent messages whet your appetite, so to speak, to go deeper into the things of God, to study His character, to dig into the Scriptures, to grow in your understanding of doctrine. Not so we can spout off some theological jargon, but so that your heart reaches new heights of devotion and worship. That's what I'm aiming to do. And by God's grace, I pray that might happen even this morning as we've spent just a few moments meditating on the, just the astounding truth of verse 12, that Jesus is the light of the world. The light of the world reveals Jesus as completely and fully one with God, and in that blessed reality, brothers and sisters, we find our hope. There's one final truth I want us to see concerning Jesus as the light of the world, and this comes largely from verse 28. The light of the world shines most brightly at the cross. The light of the world shines most brightly at the cross. You'll notice after verse 12, there's a lengthy debate between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter. It's rather intense. And in the course of it, Jesus never actually comes back to His claim to be the light of the world. He he never comes back to this. It almost seems like a detour or a distraction, as though the religious leaders succeed in getting Jesus off topic. But that's not actually what happens here. At least that's not how I read it. Instead, this ensuing debate between Jesus and the religious leaders is intended to illustrate for us the staggering depth of humanity's darkness. How badly do we need the light of the world? How badly do we need Him? Well, just look at how hardened and defiant the religious leaders are. If this is how Jesus' own people treated Him, then surely the entire world stands in need of light. In fact, take just a moment and scan through their responses with me in order to get a sense of this darkness. First off, the religious leaders are spiritually dull. Notice verse 13. They tell Jesus His testimony isn't true because He's bearing witness about Himself. But understand, this this is like legal nitpicking. They're trying to throw Jesus out on a technicality. They don't even consider Jesus' claim. Instead, they're more concerned with whether or not Jesus checks all the boxes in the courtroom. They're spiritually dull. They're too concerned with insignificant questions to grasp the weight of what Jesus has said. They're also spiritually ignorant. Notice verse 15, where Jesus tells them they judge only according to the flesh. That is, the religious leaders try to understand Jesus based solely on worldly categories. They rely on fallen human thinking, and by doing so, they miss the point. They're spiritually ignorant because they only see through the eyes of the flesh. They're also spiritually lost. Notice verse 19, the religious leaders have had enough of of Jesus' father talk. So they ask Him directly, where is your Father? They have no idea what He's talking about. Jesus makes that clear. He says, you know neither Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. You see, they're spiritually lost. They're estranged from God. and That's why they reject Jesus. The religious leaders are also spiritually condemned. Notice verse 21. 
Jesus warns them of where their unbelief will lead. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Friends, there's no ambiguity here. Jesus confronts the dire reality facing their souls. They are under God's wrath. And barring an intervention of God's grace, they will die in their sin. They're spiritually condemned. Finally, the religious leaders are spiritually blind. Notice verse 25. They ask Jesus, Who are you? And Jesus replies, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. You see, the problem is not a lack of information. Jesus has been telling them the truth. The problem is they can't see it. They're spiritually blind. Dull, ignorant, lost, condemned, and blind. Friends, that is humanity's natural state in this world. The religious leaders are unique in that they rejected Jesus to His face. But the religious leaders are also exactly like every other human being who has ever lived. We come into this world not inclined toward the light, but mired in darkness. On our own, we not only dwell in darkness, we love it. And we'll fight with every fiber of our being to hold on to that darkness. So, in the midst of such pervasive darkness, how is it ever possible for Christ's glory to be seen? I mean, yes, He's the light of the world, but this world is so dark, and our hearts are darker still. Where might the triune God display the glory of Christ so that the darkness is dispelled? Where would He do that? The answer, friends, is only at the cross. It's only at the cross. Look at verse 28. And listen for how already at this point in His ministry, Jesus' eyes are firmly fixed on the cross. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Friends, this is the pinnacle of Jesus' glory. This is the pinnacle of His self-revelation. This is where the light shines most brightly when the Lord Jesus is lifted up on Calvary's hill. Consider the magnitude of this statement. On the surface, the cross appears to be the darkest moment in human history. The Son who was sent to save is killed by the very people who should have received Him. At that moment, as Jesus hangs there on that forsaken tree, it seems that the darkness wins. In fact, the whole face of the earth was covered in darkness. And yet, what does Jesus say here? He declares that that exact moment is when His glory becomes most clear. It's the cross that reveals Jesus to be the light of the world. It's the cross that proves the darkness has been overcome. It's the cross that displays with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why when He breathes His last, the soldier keeping guard over Him at His death says, surely this was the Son of God. It's the cross that proves Jesus' claims. To be sure, there are still those who reject Jesus after the cross, but even then, the light is irrefutable. The cross and empty tomb answer once and for all the foolish claims of those who would reject Jesus. Do you want to see the glory of Christ, friends? Then fix your eyes solely on His cross. And why is this the case? It doesn't make sense to our minds. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that the cross is a stumbling block. The cross is foolishness. So why is it that the cross uniquely reveals Jesus to be the light of the world? Because it was on the cross that Jesus took our darkness and crushed it under the weight of His life-giving grace. Or to say it with the echoes of the Apostle Paul, at the cross, God made the light of the world to be darkness so that in Him, we who loved the darkness might come to walk in the light of His life. That's why. Friends, don't you want to know this Christ? Isn't your heart stirred to worship the One who crushed your darkness with the light of His grace? Don't you want to know Him? If you don't know Him today, I pray the Spirit would work right now to open your eyes to see the light of the world. In fact, I would point you back to Jesus' own words in verse 12. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you hear that, friend? That's the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to Himself. Trust Him today. He's telling you He will save you. Trust Him. On His authority, trust Him. He is the only one who can overcome the darkness of your soul. So trust Him and come to enjoy the light of His life. If you are trusting in Christ today, then I pray the Spirit would work in your heart as well to stir in you a renewed sense of worship in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, we live for what we treasure. We live for what we treasure. So if we want to live more for Christ, then we must seek by God's grace to treasure Him more and more. Devotion to Christ is not something you can conjure up. You can't conjure up more obedience. You can't conjure up more passion. That's a fruit of Christ's glory. It's a fruit of seeing it and embracing it by faith. You live for what you treasure. So know Him. Pursue Him in His Word. Right now, resolve that this next year will be different. This next year will be different. You won't settle for the surface level Christianity, but you'll press in to know the unsearchable riches of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Know Him. Know Him. I pray that each one of us might leave here this morning with a deeper sense of wonder that the One who is without question the light of this world came for us and for our salvation. As we began this morning, I asked you to imagine a courtyard with a great throng of people waiting for the lamps of the feast to be lit. That was the setting for Jesus' words, the dramatic conclusion of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as, as we've seen in our time together, what a fitting occasion that proved to be for Jesus' teaching. Well, here at the end, I'd like to ask you to imagine another scene. Again, there's a great throng of people waiting eagerly for a celebration. Except this time, there are no lamps. And that's because the lamps aren't needed. At this celebration, God Himself is the light for His people. Listen to what this same Apostle, the Apostle John, wrote in the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with Him forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that's where we must end this morning. As the light of the world, Jesus promises us there's a day coming when there will be no more darkness, no more sin, 
No more suffering. There will only be light. Not the light of lamps or sun, but the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in that light, we will live and rejoice and reign with Him forever. And so we pray what the church has prayed every day since our Lord has left. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.